and so I'm doing Sundays and or Sunday and this uh, this study here tonight, Wednesday night study, is that what we call this, right? Doing Wednesday night study here. So uh, glad to be here with you guys. Before we, before we uh, open it up, I do want to just pray for us as we get started. Lord, um, I know and uh, it has become more and more clear to me uh, how inadequate I think anyone is to be able to describe all this. That when we talk about your spirit, when we talk about you, the triune God, you're just too big for, for an hour session or for a year-long session or for, for eternity um, for us to get to the bottom of all this. And so, Lord, I pray that um, where we don't have things all figured out that we'll be able to trust you in it. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring some clarity that tonight as we open up your word, that you would give us um, a greater love for your spirit, a greater desire for him, greater hunger, and uh, that that spirit would work in our hearts and open our eyes as we open your word tonight. I'm asking you that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So the text that I was assigned to preach on Tuesday was huge. And, and I mean that in more than one way. It was huge, 36 verses long. And uh, I chalked that up partly. That part of my long sermon time, I'm chalking up to the long reading. So that was a four-minute reading, just so everybody knows. So my sermon, um, I take four minutes off of whatever the sermon time was, was on that. I've been trying to at least play that, play that card with the staff this week. But it was a huge text with a whole lot of stuff in it. But then the topic itself, the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church, the birth of the church by the Spirit's power into mission is such a huge topic. And, and I knew going into it, or I, as I began to study and prepare, I just realized, man, there are so many things here that are just, there's no way they're going to make it into the message. There's no way they're going to make it into the sermon. And so uh, Jim mentioned to me, hey, the, the next Wednesday is actually teaching on the, the, the Holy Spirit comes in power. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, would you want to take that? And initially, I was really excited about that and, and really glad because I thought, man, all this stuff that, that I can't get into Sunday morning, I'll be, able to, I'll be able to cover that in Wednesday. And so I was super excited. And then I got out Acts, got out my concordance. I started going through all the listings of the Spirit and just trying to break this down. And just, it did not take long for me to see just how deep the rabbit hole goes and to realize that I was just just jumping into heaping more frustration on myself because there's just so much and I just realized man I can't even even Wednesday I can't get it all out there I'm not gonna be able to to explain all of it the the word pneuma uh, which is for spirit or breath or wind all three of those things but the word used to describe the spirit is mentioned in the book of Acts more than anywhere else in the New Testament uh, 68 times, and not every one of those is Holy Spirit. Every now and then it's like an evil spirit or an unclean spirit, but the vast majority of those, 60-ish of them, are about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the book that has the second most is the Gospel of Luke, 
which was you know, also the writer of Acts. And so Luke is the one with this fascination with the Spirit a lot. And, and I really felt like I, I want to try and study what Luke says too because it's the same author and so the same basic ideas there behind those things. And so began to just try and dig into those in as much as I can and just realize, man, uh, the Spirit is everywhere. It's everywhere in, in these two books, but especially in Acts, all over the place, so much so, and I, I'm, I'm sure you've heard this, that most people today claim that the, the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, is improperly named, that it, it shouldn't be named that. And, and you may or may not know that the, the title didn't come with the book when Luke wrote it. Uh, so Luke didn't write it and then put Acts of the Apostles up at the top. He's just writing this book slash letter to Theophilus to explain things. And it, and it went without a title when it first went. It wasn't until late second century is the earliest we see that they started giving it this title, Acts of the Apostles. And calling it that because uh, it, it fit in line with this genre of writing of the day where you would take famous characters or famous people in history and you would try to explain a little bit of their life by just describing all the different things they did, all these different acts, uh, these famous uh, acts that took place in their life. And so somebody said, well, this is, this is describing the acts of the apostles, so that's what we'll call it. And, and a number of people today would say, actually, it's, it's probably not, not, quite, uh, not quite the right name for this book. And, and most would say, or a lot anymore today, say that uh, Acts of the Holy Spirit is a much better name for this book. Because everything that happens in here uh, is, is him, finds, finds itself kind of rooted in him. Or, or I've seen some people say it's the acts of Jesus through his people by the power of his spirit. Which, which is also pretty, we, we talked about on Sunday that Jesus never really hands the baton off. And Luke opens the book by saying, you know, in my first book, uh, I told you all the things that Jesus began to do. The Gospel of Luke, he says, that's just the beginning of what Jesus does. In Acts, now we'll start to talk about the rest of what he does, only now he does it by his Holy Spirit. So the Acts of Jesus or the Acts of the Holy Spirit are, are both good names. And, and as I begin to look through and, and try to um, work through, I've just seen how difficult it is when I try to go, okay, this is what the Spirit does in the book of Acts. The 60 times he's mentioned, he does this. And I'm, I'm going to put some nice little neat categories out here to describe. He does this here and this here and this here and this here. And I've just discovered, uh, even though I've, I've been doing this, teaching and doing ministry for 12, 13 years now, it, how hard it is for me to get a firm grasp on him and what all he does. And how, how hard it is to just parse him out into nice, neat little chunks. I saw Jim today uh, in the office area, and he said, you know, you know what's kind of hard to explain? The third member of the Trinity. I just discovered that. That's kind of hard, but, you know, go figure. But the Holy Spirit is. And, and I, I've grown to really appreciate what Jesus says in John 3, 8 when he's talking to Nicodemus. And he says, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. And, and you hear it coming, but you don't know where it's coming from, and you don't know where it's going from. There's a mystery to that. And, and I have felt that a little bit with the Spirit. Um, so uh, all that to say, we're not going to tackle everything the Spirit does in the book of Acts. We, we can't do it. It's too much. The title I was given was, uh, The Holy Spirit Comes in Power. And so we're going to do our best to talk about 
um, the Spirit working in power in the book of Acts, where we see the Spirit's uh, power at work through people. And so we'll talk, we'll read through a number of different scriptures in Luke and in Acts and in other parts of the Bible and see if we can uh, notice some themes or patterns that come about from it. Uh, Before we do, I want to point this thing out, and this is where we'll actually be spending most of our time probably tonight is talking through this distinction uh, that, that most people, when they read the scriptures, they see that, or actually, yeah, let me say that. When we read the scripture, we see that the, the, uh, the, the Holy Spirit and his interactions with human beings, it seems to fall into two major categories in the way that he interacts with people in the Bible. Uh, two different ways that he works in people's lives and on people's lives, um, and they can kind of be... Um, represented by these two verses, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Paul is talking to the church there. He says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? The Holy Spirit lives in you. And then this verse that we referenced on Sunday... Ephesians 5.18, where Paul, that same writer, will say to the churches there in Asia Minor, he'll say to them, do not be drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, those two things don't seem to, to go together. If the Holy Spirit lives in me, then how in the world am I supposed to then also be filled with him if he's already there? You, you can't go say to my house, house be filled with Drew. No, Drew already is there. Drew already lives there. How can, how can Drew fill something that Drew's already in? And, and this same question arises. How can Paul say that Holy Spirit lives in me and then he can tell me, but get filled with the Holy Spirit? Those two things don't seem to work together unless Paul is talking about two different activities of the Spirit. And so this is because of verses like these, uh, scholars, theologians, whatever, have looked through and got, man, it seems like there are at least two major ways that the Spirit works with people in the Scriptures. And so they begin to differentiate between them with these two words, indwelling and filling. Indwelling and filling. I want to talk through those for a little bit tonight. Um, This idea of filling comes up a lot in, in the book of Acts. Ten times it's explicitly said that somebody is filled with the Spirit. And then I think three or four times in Luke. And then there are like eight or nine times where the word fill isn't there, but that seems to be what's going on is this filling of the Spirit. And so uh, as much as anything else, and in fact, filling becomes, it seems like a lot of times, an umbrella term for the other things that the Holy Spirit is doing, specifically the power of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And so I want us to be able to tackle that and talk through that. But first, we're going to spend a little time here. And I'll, I'll say this as we begin. There is no place in the scriptures where the Bible says the Spirit comes in two different ways, indwelling and filling. And indwelling means this and this and this, and filling means this and this and this. That's, that's not anywhere in the scripture. It's, it's like the Trinity. We don't, we don't have the word Trinity in the Bible. What we have is scriptures that say uh, the Father is God, And we have scriptures that say Jesus is God, and we have scriptures that say the Spirit is God, and then we have scriptures that say there's one God. 
And, and between those and a number of other passages, we're left to go, okay, we know this is integrated. We know this fits together. And so we piece this together and work through it. And, and it looks like what we have is a God who is three in one. And that's where we come to that idea. Same thing here. This word filling shows up. Uh, but, but there's never a point where it says, these are the two categories and this is how you describe them. No, we, we, we look at what the Bible says about the Spirit. And as we look, it appears that these two things are, are coming together. But, but these two categories are not always nice and neat. Something that I have discovered uh, over this, uh, this last week as I've been going through it. And, and, and studying through these things has... Uh, over the last three weeks, my study of the Holy Spirit has brought at times excitement and at times frustration. And at times you can ask my wife as I sat in the kitchen with her this afternoon, a little bit of despair. As I have just come to realize I cannot explain this to myself fully, let alone everybody else. I have uh, my, my old Acts professor from, from Bible college taught the book of Acts and, and he would say about the Holy Spirit and particularly in the context of indwelling and filling, he says, you, you got to kind of be careful with terms when it comes to trying to describe the Holy Spirit because what you'll find is those terms, they never stay where you left them, right? So you put this over here, okay, indwelling the Holy Spirit and, and everything here falls under indwelling and then you kind of go over here and then you look back and you go, oh, actually this goes there too and I'm not sure if this fully covers this and, and there's just more that's going on and so it's, it's impossible to make this nice and neat but we want to try our best to gain some level of kind of clarification and distinction between those things. So you have two sheets of paper. You have one that's just there for notes for you to look through and or scribble on and all that stuff and then you have another one that should just be sheets of uh, or scriptures on either side. One side says indwelling of the Holy Spirit up top and then the other side says filling. We're going to spend our time on the indwelling first, talking about what the indwelling of the Spirit is and how it works out in the life of uh, people in the Bible. Uh, first thing we see is the purpose of indwelling in the scriptures is kind of twofold. You could just say this word right here, salvation, but it's also kind of wrapped up in that. Running out of space, I should have made my line over further. There you go. See, it does, they don't neatly stay in their categories and all that stuff. It just kind of bleeds over. Um, Sancti salvation and sanctification. These two things seem to uh, be what the purpose of the indwelling of the Spirit is. When we say indwelling, I, it, probably from the word itself, it, it becomes fairly obvious. But we're talking about when, a Holy, when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a person comes and lives inside of someone, dwells in, indwells that person. Um, so John 3, 5 through 7 touches on this idea here. Says this, Jesus answered, this is a conversation that Jesus is having with Nicodemus. Actually, I just mentioned John 3, 8. These are the verses leading right up to it where uh, Jesus is trying to explain the kingdom and, and his ministry to Nicodemus, his Pharisee. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So we, we hear this phrase, this is kind of the old school way of talking about becoming a Christian, being born again, coming out of John 3 here. And, and the fancy word that theologians like to use for what the Holy Spirit does here is regeneration. 
Regeneration. Uh, it's, it's what Ezekiel 36 looked forward to, this day when God would come and put a new kind of heart in his people, create a new kind of people by his spirit at work in them. And, and so this question, what saves you, is an interesting one biblically. What saves you? Because there are a lot of answers to that, actually. All of them kind of being the same, but uh, faith saves you. Grace saves you. The blood of Jesus saves you. Uh, Ultimately, this is the best answer, Jesus saves you, all flowing from that. But even here we see actually the Spirit is at work in your salvation. The Spirit is what makes you born again, is what comes into your heart and makes you a new person through this process of indwelling. Next, Next scripture we see that is Romans 8, 13 through 15. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And this verse kind of touches on both of these things, salvation and sanctification there together. And and what you see in this passage, and, and this is true of so many things that have to do with the Holy Spirit, is there is a blend here of both gift and responsibility. There is a gift here uh, that I do nothing for, that I did nothing to gain or receive, and that is adoption. That I am adopted as a son, that I received this spirit of adoption that allows me to call God Father. And, And there's nothing that I did in that. That is pure gift, and yet there's also responsibility that Paul talks about in my growth process and in my sanctification that I am to put to death the deeds of the body. And yet, at the root of both of these things is something outside of me. So I didn't, the gift is not, is, uh, I didn't earn it, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit gives me this adoption process. The putting to death, now I'm supposed to do that, but that also comes from the Holy Spirit. That's not for me. So at the root of both of these is the Spirit, but there's a blending of the two. And so often when we look at human interaction with the Spirit, it seems like this is the case, that the Spirit works in is all over it, is at the root of everything, and yet there is some responsibility with the gift that I have. Um, So we see that the indwelling involves salvation and sanctification. Also, for for the indwelling, it is a one-time event. It is also... a permanent event. So the indwelling is something that comes one time and, and, and no more after Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul says that the spirit is a seal that marks us as belonging to Jesus. And, and you don't get resealed. The seal doesn't need to be reapplied. When the spirit comes, you are there and from there on out marked as belonging to Christ. And he says that that seal is there, that um, it, 
what he says, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That is until eternity comes, until we are in that place to the praise of his glory. Um, but notice where this one-time event comes from. He says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation and believed in him. And so that leads us to this next thing. The indwelling is something that only happens to believers, to followers of Jesus. Acts 2.38, and Peter said to them, this is when, this is, so this is right at the tail end of the Pentecost sermon. We just, we went all the way to 36 this week. And then at the, at the end of 36, if we had read the very next verse, it would have said that after Peter said all these things, the people were cut to the heart. And they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, what should we do? If this is true, if Jesus really is this, if he really did that, if he really rose from the grave, then what are we supposed to do? And, and then Peter's response is in 238, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I had an elder uh, come approach me on Sunday after the sermon and, and came and, and talked to me, and, and he was really encouraging and said, hey, you know, Great job, really appreciated it, had said some great stuff. And then at the end, she said, only thing, the last few minutes were a bit cloudy for me. And he said, I, the one thing I wish you would have done is spent a little bit more time talking about who gets the spirit, who receives it. Because you spend a lot of time talking about how this is open to all and this is offered to all and people who don't yet belong to God and people who wouldn't even think they could belong to God and all, but, but who, how does that happen? And, and I was really, honestly, I was really appreciative of him coming to share that with me. First of all, because um, I know this brother is, first of all, he, he always encourages me. So he's, he's, he's so encouraging that I'm very able to hear from him. But second, because I think this is an elder's job, actually, is to come and, and, and to make sure that proper teaching is being done in there. And, and it gave me a chance to think. And my first thought was, Man, I, I preached like six minutes long anyway. How am I supposed to fit, fit anything else in there? Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, no, that he, he's right. I, I should have spent just a little bit more time clarifying, even though we're going to get there next week, clarifying that this spirit that is offered to all ultimately only comes and indwells those who repent, that is, change their mind about who Jesus is, and are baptized, that is, they, um, through this process of immersion, they identify themselves and, and declare their allegiance to Jesus through those things. Those are the people that get this. And anyone who does that, all, as Luke says, who does that, they, they can have this, but it's only for those who choose to do that. Um, and last thing I wanna say about indwelling is it only actually takes place in one half of the Bible, or one-third, I guess you could say, is this is only, from what we can tell, there's some who think maybe differently, but from near as we can tell, this is only something that happens in the new covenant. And, and that's because of a verse that we read during communion on Sunday, John 7, 38 through 39, this is Jesus' words, 
Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit, whom those who believed in him were Um, were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified and we mentioned that in the gospel of John that word glorified is kind of his umbrella term for Jesus's death and resurrection and and you could probably throw ascension in there too but when he talks about glorified he talks about it being lifted up lifted up on a cross in glory and then raised up, and that is his glorification. And and John says, because that had not happened yet, then the Spirit could not come on those who believe. That Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary, I believe, in order to make us the kind of fitting temples clean and holy that the spirit can dwell in and so for that reason we do not uh, from what we can tell we do not see the indwelling anywhere before the new covenant is something that only takes place after jesus has come um so now flip over to the other side and and i want to spend some time talking about the filling of the holy spirit and and in indwelling we spent more time we kind of walked a little bit all over the scriptures and that's because honestly Acts does not spend a lot of time talking about the indwelling of the Spirit. It's not that it's not there. It's there a little bit. But Acts, Luke is way more uh, concerned with this idea of the filling and the coming of the Spirit in power. And so here we're going to look just at verses in Luke and Acts to kind of see what we can learn about the filling of the Spirit. Here's the very first time it's ever mentioned uh, in the New Testament, I think. But in Luke, this is the, in his big story, this is the first time the filling is mentioned. For he, Luke 1, 15 through 17, for he, and that is John the Baptist, is the angel is talking to Zacharias in the temple about his son that's going to be born, John the Baptist. He says, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So a couple, couple things kind of worth noting here when we talk about the Holy Spirit coming. Uh, first thing we notice is that it is given to someone who has not repented and been baptized, who has not confessed belief or allegiance in Jesus. This, is, this dude is, uh, hasn't even been born yet, so he can't be born again, right? It literally says, from his mother's womb. Like in the womb, he will be filled with the Spirit. Also, this is happening before Jesus uh, was crucified and resurrected and so already we look and we go this this does not sound like this we're not talking about someone who's repented and been baptized and believed we're not talking about someone who comes after Jesus work has been finished on the cross something different is taking place here uh, Luke 1 41 through 45 and when Elizabeth which is John the Baptist's mother and and she's pregnant with John at this time she meets Mary and finds out that Mary is with child, it says this, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby, that's John the Baptist, leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. So now, not only is John the Baptist in his mother's womb filled, but then it says that Elizabeth is also filled, and she begins to proclaim these things. Go down to Luke 4, 1, and then 14 and 15. This describes Jesus' going into the wilderness for his period of temptation, and then 14 and 15 describe his coming out of the wilderness. And it says this, and Jesus... Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And then it says, after he comes out, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so now we see John the Baptist, we see Elizabeth, and then we see Jesus, who certainly does not need to repent and be baptized, who certainly does not need to believe, and yet the Spirit is coming on him, is filling him up as well. He's full of the Spirit, it says. So then if this is not for salvation, what is it for? If it doesn't have anything to do with this, and it doesn't have to do with Jesus' sanctification, he's not needing to grow in holiness. He's not needing to become more Christ-like. Um, so then, what is it for? What is the purpose there? Um, let me read a couple more, and then we'll, then we'll start to unpack that. Acts 1.8. This is probably the kind of keystone that launches this whole talk of the Spirit in in the book of Acts, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is Jesus' words to the apostles and he's looking forward to the day of Pentecost and what comes after that. And Acts 2.4, here's the fulfillment of that. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and begun to speak in other tongues and the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, here's the question. With all the passages we just read, do you see any common themes? Do you see anything in there that looks the same? couple things here. Uh, in all of these things, uh, a powerful proclamation comes out of people. When, when the Spirit of God comes on them, is when they are filled with the Spirit, um, almost every time power is mentioned, and even if not, something supernatural kind of takes place, and this, this kind of uh, some might say ec ecstatic or, or spontaneous speaking out or proclamation of things. So primarily what we see with the filling of the Spirit as we, as we look into it more is the filling is for empowerment. And that is for a particular task. So a, an individual is empowered or a group of people are empowered for a particular task. So John is empowered so that he will then go out and do this incredible ministry, pointing, clearing the way for the Lord, clearing the way for Jesus. Um, Elizabeth is then empowered and she proclaims this kind of prophetic utterance over Mary in that moment when the Spirit uh, fills her up. And then Jesus comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit to do his ministry. Acts 1-8, the apostles uh, will be empowered to do their mission that Jesus gives them. And then we see that take place in Pentecost. It seems like it always results in an empowerment that leads to mission. And, and here's the other one that, that we'll kind of get to hopefully a little bit, but I just, I haven't been able to get around it. I just wanted to keep it kind of at empowerment 
but joy seems to always be a result almost every time. So the filling of the Spirit almost always leads to empowerment that leads to mission or joy that leads to worship, and often it's both at the same time. That's Acts 2. They go out and they begin just proclaiming in these other tongues the mighty works of God. And it's like they just can't help but worship, but the worship is also the testimony, is also them fulfilling the mission as that creates way for them to speak these truths about who Jesus is. Um, you'll also notice, I think I kind of touched on, almost every one of these examples so far and, and the vast majority have to do with witnessing to who Jesus is, pointed to Jesus. Even John the Baptist leaping in the womb at the sound uh, of Mary's voice because he knows that she, she is carrying Jesus in her womb. Um, go look down at Acts 4.8. Here's another example of filling with the Spirit. This is when the chief priests, the rulers of the Sanhedrin have called Peter and John in and Peter and John have just healed this guy and then he started preaching to the crowds and Peter and John call him and they go, what's the meaning of this? You need to explain this. And so they're kind of brought before the rulers and then it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders. And from there he goes into the gospel. He goes and begins to explain to these people, these people who had Jesus killed, who Jesus is and what he's about. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, this is all of the believers now, so Peter and John go back to the church, they're all in one place and they're talking about this and it says, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but so far, Peter has now been filled with the Spirit three times. Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Acts 4.8 as he's standing there before the chief priests and elders. And then Acts 4.31 when he goes back with the church. And, and they begin to pray for greater boldness in light of the fact that the authorities are starting to threaten them now, trying to shut them up. They pray, God, help us be bold. Help us, give us opportunities, do miracles, do amazing things. And then it says, and after they had praised, the place where they gathered was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. So Peter has been filled three times, which reveals to us this next thing, that the filling of the Spirit is something that can take place multiple times and in contrast to indwelling, it appears to be something that is temporary. It does not last forever. It is, again, for this specific task. And so the filling takes place for that task in that moment uh, or in that week or in the however long that may take. And then, and then it seems like it kind of moves away. And this fits a little bit with the command that we read in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That word is actually, it's, it's four things. It's present, which means continuous. It's passive, which means you don't do it. It's imperative, which means you have to do it. And it's plural, which means it's kind of all of you. So that verb is present, passive, imperative, plural. But, but I want to focus on that present. It's continuous. So what it might better be translated is be continuously filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Keep coming back to that. So we see that the filling of the Spirit involves the temporary empowering of an individual or group for a specific task and that it can, not always, but it can happen more than once. 
But in scripture, we also see that it's not confined to the new covenant, okay? So this is, as opposed to an indwelling, it takes place in both covenants. And in contrast to the indwelling, it can happen to anyone. And I mean anyone. It happens to Moses, we talked about in Numbers, when Moses is leading the people out in, into uh, the wilderness and into the promised land. He is empowered by the Spirit for that. But then he takes that same Spirit and he places it on 70 elders there. And it happens to them. It also, so it'll, it'll happen to, we mentioned kings and prophets and, and a number of the people you would expect. It also happens to people you would never expect. It happens to King Saul as he's trying to chase down David and kill him. The Holy Spirit comes on Saul and he just begins prophesying and basically loses control. It says he disrobes, lays down at the feet of Samuel prophesying naked for like a day. And, and so the Holy Spirit comes. Saul is not what you would call a believer, but not just because he's in the old covenant. He does not even seem to be a person of God or a man of God. He's against God and what God wants. And yet even he is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, uh, even, uh, even Balaam in Numbers 23, most people know Balaam as you know, the guy with the donkey. Balaam is a sorcerer whose job is to come and try and curse the Israelites, and he's unable to do it because every time he tries, the Spirit comes and fills him and causes him to only call for blessings on the people of Israel. And so you don't even have to belong to God for the Holy Spirit to come fill you. The Holy Spirit, this is another, another thing I heard from my Acts professor, the Holy Spirit does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with or without your permission. And, and, and that, is, that seems to be true throughout Scripture, that he did now primarily the Holy Spirit comes on believers, comes on those who are following him, and, and the filling of it is something we seek. And so, but if he so chooses, he can, he can come on wicked sorcerers and wicked kings and use them as well. Um, and, and actually, you can also throw in there guys like Samson, who are kind of good but kind of not, and, and filled up for those things. Um, so it comes for anyone and in both covenants. And also I'll say this, this task, we talk about being empowered for a task. It's not always like a super spiritual task. Um, like there's this guy in, in Exodus. I think I wrote his name down somewhere. Uh, no, it looks like I did not. Um, I think his name is Bezalel out of Exodus 23. It says that, God comes and fills him with the Spirit so that he will be able to design and craft things for the tabernacle well. So even for like artistic thing, the Spirit comes and fills him and enables him for the creating of God's house. Samson, the Spirit comes on him not to do spiritual things, comes on him so he can beat up Philistines. Like that's, that's what happens. The Spirit comes and empowers him for that. But there are, um, so, so these, are, these are kind of the four main things in which these things would seem to contrast to me as we look through it. But there are a few areas in Acts that seem to just sort of break out of my categories a little bit. And I can't quite figure out where to place them or how to put them. Uh, one of the primary peop, uh, people with this is Stephen. And Luke can barely mention Stephen's name without throwing in who was full of the Holy Spirit. He loves, every time he talks about Stephen, he has to talk about 
this guy was full of the Holy Spirit. And here's Acts 6, uh, 3 through 5. It says this, therefore, brothers, this is, sorry, I, I started into these and I remember, I should probably give you the context on all, every one of these. So this is where the apostles called the church together and there's this need for food distribu- distribution amongst the poor widows in the church and the apostles are trying to do all of this and they can't do that and lead the church and do the preaching and teaching at the same time. So they're like, we need to bring some other men into this who can help with this. And so they call the church together. They say, we need some other people who can help take care of the administration of this. And it says, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And Luke will say this again about Stephen in chapter 7, that he's full of the Spirit. Um, and then he'll talk about that, they, that the Jews could not argue with his wisdom and with the Spirit in him. And so he just keeps coming back to this idea. But the same thing that's said about Stephen here is also said about Barnabas in 1124. He was a good man and full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Very similar to what is described about Peter. And then in Acts 13, 52, shortly after, Paul comes and shares the gospel in Iconium. And then he and Barnabas get thrown out. It then says about the believers in our Iconium that all of them were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so all of these believers there are filled with those. And these ones sound a little bit different as you read them than do like this Peter getting filled all of a sudden in the moment to, to preach out to the authorities or the, the believers in out Pentecost getting filled and speaking in tongues and going out. This is, the, the way it describes it is, is not quite permanent, but not quite like a short blast of power from the Spirit. It sounds like Stephen walks in a way that is full of the Holy Spirit, that he lives in a way, that his, mark, that his life is kind of marked by being full of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas too, that there's something bigger than just this one little thing. Actually, it sounds a lot like the same way that Luke described Jesus when it says that Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. It's this, it's this thing in which the Spirit is not just kind of launching you into this mission, but has, has control over your life. It's the same word, I, I believe actually, it's the same word and language that Peter uses to, describe, to talking to Ananias when he says, um, how has Satan so filled your heart? In other words, how in the world would you let Satan have that much control over you? control your life, determine your decisions. And that same word is used to describe Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit in the very next chapter. That, that, that the Spirit has control there and it manifests itself in this different level of wisdom, in this different kind of faith, or in this different kind of joy that seems to take place in all of these. It seems to have to do, and that's why I say indwelling has to do with salvation and sanctification, the fullness of spirit that Barnabas and Stephen seem to have seem to also have to do with sanctification. It seems to be almost something in which you are um, allowing the spirit that is already indwelling you to have complete access to every part of your life and every part of who you are. 
where you are, as Galatians says, walking in step with the Spirit. Galatians 5, I believe, walking in step and living in step with the Spirit. There seems to be something else, and it's, it's still the Spirit's work. It's still the Spirit's power, um, but, but there's something that you're kind of doing with those things together. And, and like I said, that, that breaks outside of my categories. I don't have something to fit that in nice and neat. It's, it's bigger than that, but, but something that I think is, is pretty cool to see in Scripture and something we ought to pursue. Um, let, me, let me kind of in our last 10, 15 minutes wrap up with just a few observations about some of the things that, that we just read here. Number one is this. The filling of the Spirit may manifest itself differently, but the results are similar. So when the Spirit comes to fill people, that looks different. It doesn't always look the same. There's not a pattern. There's not some carbon copy where the same thing happens. And yet the results are always very similar in a person. So in Acts 2, when the Spirit comes and fills the disciples, it manifests itself with tongues of fire and with a mighty wind and with speaking in tongues. In Acts 4, it says the Spirit fills them and the place is shaken. Most people think like an earthquake actually takes place. But there's no mighty wind. There's no tongues. There's no fire. Um, in Acts 10, um, the Spirit comes and fills Gentile believers who are first hearing the gospel. And just like in Acts 2, they start speaking in tongues. But there's no fire that comes. There's no wind, just the tongues. Um, in Acts 10, or sorry, in Acts 7, uh, when Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit, it says that he gets this vision of Christ seated on a throne in heaven. And so he's able to have this kind of vision that goes along with it. And then there are other places like Acts 4.8 that I mentioned, or Acts 5.31, where it just says Peter or Paul or whoever was filled with the Spirit. And it doesn't seem like there's any manifestation, any supernatural thing that takes place. No speaking in tongues. No. So the, the way it happens is different almost every time. And yet the results of it always seem to be the same. It always seems to result in some combination of boldness, worship, and proclamation. Boldness, worship, and proclamation. I, I lack all three of those things. Not completely. I love to, I love to worship. Um, I like to try and teach and talk about who Jesus is, but proclamation to people and, and boldness. You can ask people who know me is not naturally a part of my personality. And so those are, but these are things that happens when the Spirit comes and fills a person and takes their life over. Uh, this is something I long to see in me, regardless of what it may look like, whether tongues of, of fire ever appear, whether I ever speak in tongues, but that the Spirit would fill me with a boldness and a joy that worships and proclaims who Jesus is. That is something I long for for myself and all of us. The second um, observation I'll make is it doesn't have as much to do with the text, but it's this. I believe that this can still happen today. It, it is really easy to look around and think, yeah, but um, it's cool that the Spirit did that on Pentecost. It's cool that the Spirit, you know, shook the place and, and everyone was filled with boldness. It's cool that Paul was filled with the Spirit or that Stephen had a vision of Jesus or those things. But the Spirit doesn't work like that today. That's like how we used to do things back, back before we had the Bible, back when the apostles were in existence. I, I still believe that he does those things today. I, I don't think 
this idea that the Spirit doesn't operate like this anymore, I don't think we get that idea from Scripture. I don't think we read the Scriptures and get the idea that this is meant to, to end and never happen anymore. I think we get that idea from our experience. We get that idea from looking around and going, hasn't happened to me. Like I never, I've never had tongues of fire come over my head. I've never experienced an earthquake after prayer. And, and nobody I know has experienced it. At least nobody that I trust has experienced it. And when I've seen it, it just looks a little, a little weird or whatever. And, and, and so I think we take our experiences and we place them over the scripture and go, yeah, so I, don't, I think that's just a back then thing. But my interp professor, Jim Johnson, used to say that we do not let our experiences interpret the scriptures. We let the scriptures interpret our experiences. And, and so it's important to remember that. Um, John Stott said this about, about the coming of Pentecost in Acts 2 says, we must be careful not to relegate to the category of exceptional what God has intended to be the church's natural experience. So let me freeze, rephrase that. John Stott says, don't take things like the Spirit fall in and say, that's just an extraordinary thing because you don't know that maybe that's actually supposed to be natural for the church. Be careful that you don't just chalk all of that up to crazy and a long time ago in the past. Because what if God is actually still moving like that in parts of the world? What if he still wants to move like that some today? So then what does it look like today or feel like today when someone is filled with the Spirit? Someone is empowered with the Spirit. I confess to you that I don't know. I don't know and I have... I have tried to do a lot of reading and, and try to, you know, study through scriptures and listen to people and all of those things and try and figure that out. I've read stories of um, modern-ish people and modern people who've experienced things like this. Jonathan Edwards, one of the fathers of the Second Great Awakening, who many people consider to be kind of like a stuffy Puritan preacher. He's famous for his, his most famous sermon is sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? So it doesn't sound like a happy-go-lucky, you know, charismatic. Uh, but uh, Jonathan Edwards talks about a time where he went out on a horse ride he used to like to do. And as he's meditating on um, Jesus and Christ in the scriptures, had this amazing just vision of the glory and the love of God that he said consumed him for over an hour that he spent in tears and this closeness and nearness to God that he had never um, seemed to experience before. Uh, D.L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, talks about of a time when he had these two women who were praying in his church every Friday for him and he was annoyed with them for a long time and then he, uh, and, and finally decided, I'm, I'm gonna go join them. They were praying for him to be filled with the Spirit and he was annoyed by that but after a while, he felt like, man, I, I feel like maybe there's something going on here that I need to step into. And so he began to, every Friday, sit on the front pew of his church with them in Chicago and, and pray for the filling of the Spirit in his ministry. And then in, I think it was 1871, 1871, 1874 of November, his church burned down in the great Chicago fire. And so he goes to New York trying to, to raise money to get his church built back. And he's walking through New York for weeks trying to raise this. And he describes his experience. I should have typed it down. I wanted to read it to you and I don't have it. Um, but you can go like Google this. He, he describes his experience one day as he's walking through New York where the love of God and the presence of God is made so real to him, so much that he says, A, 
This is something he wrote in his diary. He said, A, I almost never talk about it. I don't know how to talk about it without it sounding or feeling weird to me. And he says, B, it was so real and so on top of me that I had to ask the Lord to stay his hand. That is to relent a little bit. It's, it's too much. And then he, he said, I went home from that and my messages didn't change. My ministry style didn't change. Nothing changed, but all of a sudden, um, by the hundreds, people were coming to Christ in his ministry, and that's where Moody's ministry really took off. Um, John White, who's written a number of books, uh, he was a psychologist and a minister and a missionary, and he describes an amazing experience in prayer. We, he claims he saw fire come up uh, through the floor. He's doing these things, and, and listen, I know you're hearing that, and you're thinking what I did in my head. I think he's crazy. I think he might be off, and, and, and I don't know what to do with those. I do know that in every experience I read um, of people that I trust, again, godly people that I trust, there seems to be two things, a very real vision of the love of God and the glory of God, which those things seem to match up because uh, the Bible talks about how he is the spirit of adoption that allows us to know our sonship, allows us to know that we are daughters. Romans 5 talks about how the spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. And we know that the spirit exists to make God and Christ and, the, and his glory known. And so those things seem to be there. So I, I don't know what exactly the filling of the spirit looks like. I can't say, uh, if I have experience, I don't know exactly. But I do know um, that it is something I, I believe God still does and I do believe that I can ask and trust God to do what he will. And maybe he will fill me and maybe he won't, but I, I can trust his goodness and his rightness. I don't think, by the way, Jonathan Edwards doesn't record one of those every week. He, he only records one of those. Dwight Moody only records one of those. Um, and so it's not like they're talking about something happening all the time. Here's the third thing. The Spirit's key purpose is pointing people to Jesus. That's what the Spirit does here, and that's what the Spirit does here, is he makes much of Jesus, and he lifts Jesus up. Jesus said this in John 16, 14. He says that the Spirit, he says, I'm gonna send the Spirit. He says, the Spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And this is clearly the main point of, one, of Acts 1, 8, that the power that comes with the Holy Spirit is so that they can go out and then witness to Jesus so that they can go and declare that's why the Spirit came for them. And in Acts 5.32, Peter actually says, we are all witnesses of Jesus, and so is the Holy Spirit. That's his word. So is the Holy Spirit, witnesses to Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And so I know this, that if the Spirit is truly at work in a person or in a church or in a ministry, it will not result in a greater and greater fascination with the Spirit. It will result in a greater affection for Jesus. It's how you know someone is spirit-filled and spirit-led and spirit-marked. It's not that they spend all their time talking about the spirit, though we could maybe afford to do more of that, I'm sure, but that they spend more and more of their time talking about, thinking about, living for, emulating Christ because that's what the spirit does in a person when it takes over him. Um, so when a person is spirit-filled, they will, Jesus will be lifted up more and more in that person's life and ministry. And I don't know if the type of filling that's described in Acts 2 or in Acts 4 is even supposed to happen to all of us. 
I don't know if we're supposed to have some amazing supernatural manifestation of the Spirit. I don't know if that's God's will for all of us to have that. But I do think that the kind in Acts 6 with Stephen and the kind in Acts 11 with Barnabas is supposed to be us. The kind of fullness of Spirit that results in a greater faith and a greater joy and a greater wisdom and most importantly, a greater love for Jesus. And, and that is what I want. Whether the supernatural manifestations, whether the really amazing or crazy stories ever happen, cool, not cool, whatever. However God chooses to do that is great. But what I do want for me and what I do want for our church is that we will be like Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit in a way that lifts up Jesus first and foremost above all things, that that would become more and more a marker of who we are. And so I hope I, I ended with these three things on Sunday, and I'll say them again. I hope that we will, A, let the word shape our desires for the Holy Spirit, that as we read about it, we'll want more of him, and more of him in the way that the Bible describes him. And two, I pray that we will take a posture of humble obedience, that we will be ready and willing to obey, depending on him to supply the boldness and the power and the wisdom to do so. And then three, that we will ask God to send his Holy Spirit on us as we do those things. Um, so I will pray for that, and then, uh, and then we'll be done. Dear Father, we don't ask, um, I don't ask for um, really cool stories to tell, um, amazing supernatural events that I can talk about or write about in a book or something someday. But what I do want, what we do want, Lord, is more of your spirit. We do want to be filled with him in a way that he has control over our lives. We do want to be filled with him in a way that moves us to lift Jesus up, to proclaim him to one another and to those who are around us. That moves us to a greater level of holiness and Christ-likeness because that's what the Spirit does in people's lives. And so I pray that for us, Lord. I pray that for our church, that you would send your Spirit down on us and that he would um, empower us for whatever task you may have for us that he would sanctify us, and that he would lift Jesus up in our hearts and in our church. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.